Hello, I'm Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and I chair the Hoover History Working Group. Our latest session has featured the work of the British historian Nicholas Lambert, I think one of the most pioneering and original historians of modern British military and economic uh, history, and the author of uh, several path-breaking books, Sir John Fisher's Naval Revolution, which won the Distinguished Book Prize from the Society for Military History, Taming Armageddon, Economic Warfare Planning and Practice, 1906 to 1916, and his most recent book, uh, just published by Oxford, The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster, How Globalized Trade Led Britain to Its Worst Defeat of the First World War. Uh, Nick, welcome uh, to Hoover. Uh, these are extraordinary books, and in many ways, uh, this latest one is the most uh, extraordinary of them all. But it had its origins in your undergraduate special subject at Oxford. Uh, give me the background. I, I remember those days. My special subject was a different one, the, the Third Reich special subject. But you went for uh, Michael Howard's Gallipoli special subject, and it's really the genesis of this book, right? Yes, that's right. It actually probably predates that because in my first year as an undergraduate, um, I didn't. I audited, I think, in turn the the Dardanelles course uh, by Michael Howard, and um, it sort of rather hooked me there and then. And um, anyway, but I was primarily an economist when I started, and uh, it was actually because of Michael Howard that I gravitated steadily towards uh, the history side rather than the economic side. Uh, Let's but I talk a bit. Continue to blend the two, both economics and history together, particularly the military side. Let's talk a bit about the, the kind of traditional view of Gallipoli. It doesn't loom especially large in American memory, but it, it looms very large in, in British and Australian memory. Tell us first, what do people usually think of when you say Gallipoli? First, well, the two things they go to right away. The first thing is Winston Churchill. It was all about Winston Churchill. It was his idea. It was him pushing through time and time again when uh, it, the, 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 they reached a point where it looked like it was going to fail. He demanded reinforcement of the failure. Um, and then the second thing that preoccupies everybody in the discussion is you know, who was primarily responsible and who was primarily to blame, which are very subjective idea or concepts to begin with. Nobody's really interested in very much in discussing what, what they were doing, what they intended to do by going there. It's been rather assumed it was a strategic initiative. Uh, but the one question that really nobody has ever properly studied is um, why did the other members of the um, the, the, uh, the inner cabinet, the war council, as it was called, agreed to this. Right? There were eight people in the room. Winston Churchill was just one of them, the most junior, the most distrusted, and the most disliked. So why did they agree to his idea? What was going through their minds? And that was the point of departure for this book, uh, The Warlords and the Leaving Disaster. And the usual answer, and probably the one that most undergraduates put into their special subject essays was 
that uh, Churchill was looking for a, a quick way to end the war because there was a stalemate on the Western Front and it was never going to be achieved there. Tell us why that's wrong, or at least grossly oversimplified. Um, well, it's more than oversimplified in the sense that he didn't start using that argument until quite late in the day, at least March and possibly April of 1915, did he even start presenting it as a strategic initiative. But he didn't really put all the pieces together until he's writing after the war in, of course, World Crisis, his you know, uh, memoir, History of the Universe, with him at the center of it. Um, and it's then, uh, or there, that he presents the idea as it was a coherent, rational alternative to the Western Front. Uh, the subtext being is, is that I, am, uh, I was extremely far-sighted. And um, if we had done this, the war would have been over a lot quicker and we wouldn't have lost a million men. Well, now, I guess at the popular level, the, the memory is just a, a disastrous military debacle in which Australian and New Zealand uh, soldiers were sacrificed to uh, a stuffy and dim-witted British officers, uh, the sort of Mel Gibson version of history. But you're much less interested in the military outcome than in the genesis of the operation and, and in showing that the, the rationale was really quite different from that retrospective or at least uh, almost retrospective version of events. And you introduce into the analysis, as you have done again and again in your career, the economic dimension, the stuff that military historians tend to leave out. Uh, and it, it all has to do with the, the global grain trade and, and, the, and the increasingly precarious position of, of Russian finances on one side and the, the, the domestic food market in the UK. Explain how this all connects together and gets Mel Gibson onto that uh, blood-soaked beach. Well, um, I mean, the simplest way to put it is that the largest exporter of wheat in the world in 1914 is Russia. And the largest importer of wheat in the world is Britain. And when they closed the Dardanelles, which is the principal route for, by which you transfer the Russian wheat uh, to the global market, yes, um, you have created a massive, um, what is it, shock to the global economic system. Uh, by closing the Dardanelles, you don't just shut off Russian wheat, uh, you shut off Romanian wheat too. So the net result is something like 34, 35% of global supply is just like that off. And the effects that are going to, uh, the effects on prices uh, are, are pretty obvious. They're going to start spiraling. Uh, and they, they expected them to spiral, but what they hadn't anticipated is that this would occur at exactly the same time as the great drought in Australia, when Australia was a net importer of wheat that year, uh, uh, the, the, the worst famine in Australia um, since time began. Um, at the same time, you also had um, a very severe freeze in North America, which locked up all of the wheat uh, supplies west of Chicago. And that also impacts Canada as well. And then, of course, in uh, December, January of 1915, uh, the South American crop, uh, they lose about 20% of it in the fields due to torrential rains. And the whole combination, it's a literally a perfect storm in the wheat market. It's a once, once in a hundred year event. And so when the Board of Trade um, start working out or start uh, running their calculations and figuring what they expect is going to happen to the prices, 
they say in January 1915, we're looking not at doubling of the wheat prices, which would be horrific. We're talking about quadrupling and possibly quintupling, uh, which would be catastrophic um, in terms of uh, the support for the war in Britain. Uh, because, of course, uh, bread uh, from wheat is the staple of the working classes. So all of these different economic uh, variables come together to make the idea of uh, taking the Dardanelles, breaking the Dardanelles, and, and ending that uh, obstruction to the international wheat trade. That's the rationale, in your view, for this decision. But I want to talk a little bit about how the decision gets reached, because what's beautiful about your book is, is the detail with which you you reconstruct the decision-making process. It, it's no longer all about Churchill. Uh, it becomes a really quite intricate uh, dance uh, between the different uh, ministries, the different government agencies, the different political interests and economic interests, and we almost get down to hour-by-hour hour shifts. Talk a little bit about that, because it seems to me that your methodology as a historian is, is almost that of the medievalist. You reconstruct with great precision uh, the, the documentary trail and arrive at a completely new version uh, of, of events, which I, I found revelatory. Uh, that's a lot of um, careful leafing through of, of dusty official minutes uh, to reconstruct the sequence uh, of events. At the end of it all, Who's in charge? This was a question people love to ask about Berlin. Who rules in Berlin? But who ruled in London in the end? Was it Asquith? To the extent that anybody rules, it probably is Asquith, yes. Um, but, um, oh, it's Asquith is the head of a political coalition within his own party. Um, so to the extent that he rules, yes, he controls the agenda. He controls the time timetable, but he is also um, subject to pressures from all sorts of different factions within his own party. He's also subject to pressure from outside the party within the city of London, within, as I say, the myriad interest groups. Um, he's, it's, a, it's a very, very complex um, uh, balancing act. And then the two things I would say is, I mean, the, fundamentally, yes, you're right about the, my approach to doing this is that I don't believe, I, I, I try and do what I call intent-based history, which is basically establishing what the intent was. And then the intent is when you deal, when you start looking through intent, you're then reviewing the options that were considered. And quite often, there's, there's always options, there's four or five options typically. And you can... You have to identify what the other options were that were considered and then why they were rejected. And you often learn as much and sometimes more from why they reject certain options and choose the one they actually do uh, than just by focusing on the one that they do. Now, an awful lot of other, um, a lot more of traditional uh, history, particularly military history, rather focuses on the outcome. They start with a known outcome and then try and work backwards through that. And without paying very much attention to the alternatives, alternatives that were considered and rejected. So, uh, one of the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say is one of the other alternatives, in fact, the, the initial policy uh, with respect to the wheat problem, which they had fully anticipated and worked out before the First World War, uh, thanks to a very, very smart man called uh, 
uh, Robert Bruce or Lord Balfour of Burley. Um, and uh, he, he warned that the problem was not going to be shortage of food, it was going to be the price of food. And he said the problem isn't really with the food not existing, it's the market system itself that we have created and the way risk is carried and distributed through the system. And in fact, one of the, 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 their initial uh, plan um, up until they started initiating in December 1914 is to actually, uh, it's rather clever actually, I think, um, they decided to try and rig the price of wheat futures on Chicago, uh, on the Chicago exchange. And uh, they actually started trading heavily in wheat secretly in wheat, uh, I think it's 12th of December, 1914. And uh, the most extraordinary thing is the money man, because uh, it was very, very secret, but the money man in the treasury was none other than John Maynard Keynes, who got given control of a bank account hidden away in the Bank of Liverpool. Um, with uh, It started with half a million pounds just to get things going and went on from there. This is the kind of history that, that uh... Uh, Bob Zellick thinks uh, we should be doing history that takes foreign policy and finance, uh, grand strategy and economics and, and stitches it together. Uh, if you were trying to get the interest of, let's say, American uh, decision makers in the year let's just say 2021, uh, and persuade them that, that your book had some relevance to their world. What kind of analogies come to mind? I, I can think of one myself, but m maybe you've, uh, you've got a contemporary analogy that would be, uh, that would be relevant. Well, you, yeah, you said you've got one yourself, but let's hear yours first, please. Well, I'm thinking that decision making about the U.S.-China relationship and and the uh, and the potential conflict over Taiwan that we've heard so much about uh, calls uh, uh, up the the analogy with semiconductors, uh, the crucial the crucial part really of the modern uh, uh, electronic economy. Is 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 there something to be learnt uh, from the whole fiasco, and it was in the end a fiasco of Gallipoli for American policy today? I think there are a number of things to learn. Number one is the economics of warfare is so, so important. The first thing one has to do if one lands, lands up in a war is to stabilize your own economy. Uh, before, in other words, prevent yourself from losing the war before you have a chance to win it. Um, the second thing is, is that if you're going to wage offensive economic war, it's a heck of a lot more difficult than you think it might be. Um, it's very, very complicated indeed. And you have, you know, I, I, I think the biggest problems the British found in the First World War was not the, um, the, the problems of the Germans or the neutrals uh, or the ordinary neutrals. There was the problem was, it's the biggest problem they faced was their own British corporations or British companies and British corporations screaming murder uh, that they were hurting and demanding special exceptions and um, for special treatment um, or ex um, not you know, to, to, to be given a special license to carry on doing what they're doing and then yes never mind about everybody else and i think that the calls for special exceptions are going to be deafening if ever the united states find themselves in a war with china but the, and another aspect would be is is that just how messy uh, decision making is under pressure when it's involving war and economics um, it's uh, the best analogy I think I can come up with. It's like walking through a blizzard. 
uh, your visibility is the end of your nose if you're lucky. You're being buffeted left, right, front, back. Um, and it's, I suppose, one of the, as I said, what I would say is, is you really need to know what you're getting yourself into and how difficult it is to control these sorts of forces. Not so much uh, the fog of war as the blizzard of war. Nicholas, uh, thanks so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us, for coming to speak to the Hoover History Working Group. And I wish you the very best of luck with this extraordinary and innovative book, uh, which I think really does uh, revise and and transform the way we think about a very famous episode in, in British military history, the Warlords and the Gallipoli disaster out from Oxford now. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.